Welcome back to the next uh, 100 plus episode. This is one of the plus episodes. This is the, the second of the three interviews that I conducted when I was in Israel. So this makes it sort of the third of the four interviews I conducted around Israel. The first was Roy Schwartz. That happened here uh, in Chicago. He is the Messianic Jew working with Chosen People's Ministries. Second, which was the last one, was Johanna Caranacho, the uh, academic dean at Nazareth uh, Evangelical College in Nazareth. Uh, and Johanna was a Palestinian Arab, um, excuse me, a Palestinian Christian Israeli. Today, it is Salim Munayer, who, like Johanna, uh, is a scholar leader. So he is one of, uh, one of like 450 people that scholar leaders, the group that I've worked with, has helped fund his PhD education. Salim did his at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies. Uh, Salim is uh, a little bit older than I am. Uh, he and his wife, she's a Brit. Uh, Salim was born in, um, I think he was born in, in Jerusalem, but anyway, he was, he's, uh, was born um, in the broader Palestine area, and he has, has had Israeli citizenship that's complicated when you are a, a Palestinian. Not all have Israeli citizenship both Johanna and Salim do. Uh, Johanna has been for 35 years the executive director of Musalaha. The, uh, it's a ministry of reconciliation between uh, lots of different groups of people. And his, we've been friends for 35 years and uh, his ministry has grown dramatically. You'll hear a little bit about it, but it started with this idea of taking 15 um, Jewish Israelis and 15 Palestinians um, who were doing similar jobs. So they were doctors or they were teachers or they were mothers who had lost uh, children in tensions between the Jews and the Palestinians or they were whatever, they were surgeons or they were pastors or whatever um, and they would go out into the desert for a, a few days or a week, whatever it was, uh, 15 uh, 15 Jews, 15 Palestinians, 15 camels, and they shared a camel, and they were f more scared of the camels than they were of each other, and they had to get along, and then they started relationships that would, um, that would grow over time as they'd work together on things. So uh, <clears throat> this was an interview that we conducted uh, during uh, an evening meeting when we were in Israel, and uh, you have a chance to just listen in as I was interviewing uh, Salim. And as I said, this is the, the penultimate interview. Next week will be the final one, and that's with uh, Gil uh, Hoffman, who is a, a observant Jew and an Israeli who is a political correspondent. So I ask many of them the same questions, and um, hope it's in, I hope it's helpful, hope it's interesting. And then I am just about done with uh, episode number 75 which is on the 20th century. So that will be in the queue here before too much longer. Hope you're doing well. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome. And uh, I'm very thankful to have uh, Dr. Salim Munayer, a longtime <laughs> friend, with us tonight. So Salim and I met when we were young men with young kids. Really young. <laughs> 
And uh, we were the youngest in the room. We were both now commenting that we're now often the oldest in the room and uh, looking to get out of all the administration that comes with ministry and turn it over to young bucks. And Salim is turning over Musalaha to just turned over uh, the presidency to his second son. He has four sons, Salim and Kay. Uh, Salim grew up here, a Palestinian uh, Christian grew up. Did you, were you born in Jerusalem? No, in Lida, near the airport. Near the airport, okay. And uh, your wife is, is a Brit? Yes. Okay. And have four sons and raised them here. Uh, they've been in and out of the UK doing grad school. And one of them is, so your oldest son is working with World Vision and doing reconciliation work. He's working for World Council of Churches as, as human rights violation observer, uh, head of that organization. Okay. Second son had just finished an MBA and is working now with Musalaha, which is the Ministry of Reconciliation that Salim started. And he is getting ready to brief the Security Council. He's been invited. Uh, he last month spoke to Secretary of the State, Anthony Blinken, and he's been invited by US government to speak in the Security Council next week. Okay. So trying to get him a visa to the state now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, visas. Uh, they have two other sons that are uh, finishing up schooling, working on uh, in the process of applying for PhDs, theolo theology, and other things. So, Selena's grandfather. I am not, although will be Lord willing in six weeks. Oh, yeah, that's what. That will change you, your wife' life. Yes, change my wife's life. <laughs> so I have been told. Uh, so Salim has three books. Uh, he has more than three books out, but he has three books that are here tonight. So I, I don't hold this up. So this is uh, a simple uh, outline of the reconciliation work that they do that we're going to talk about. He has then two books that are more theological. One uh, called The Land Cries Out. And then the other one, Through My Enemy's Eyes. So these are $15 here, $20 if you decide to buy them uh, online. So um, let me start just with a couple general warm-up questions. Tell us about Musala. So this has been your life's work. So by the way, Salim did his PhD at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies, working on, as I remember, the identity of a minority within minorities? The ethnic identity of Palestinian Christian among Jewish majority and Muslim majority. Okay, so the ethnic identity of a Palestinian Christian among a Jewish and Muslim majority, yeah. okay? And you have been doing reconciliation work through Musalaha and other things. I mean, you're a professor, you're teaching classes at Bethlehem Bible College, Hebrew University, Pepperdine University, other places. Uh, and writing books and speaking uh, around the world. But your, your, your life's work has really been reconciliation and reconciliation in the Middle East. And Musalaha's initial premise, as I first remember it, 15 Palestinians, 15 Jews, 15 camels out in the desert, four or five days as the start of a process of building relationships that are going to go over time. Fill that in. Yeah, Musalha mean reconciliation. Uh, when I came back from the state after doing my graduate study at Fuller, I was teaching Israeli and Palestinian students. And when they asked me what the other side think about the situation, 
didn't like my answer. So I said, you don't like what you hear from me, why don't you meet with them? They met with each other and they were both believers in Jesus from the Israeli community uh, and the Palestinian. It didn't work out, it was a disaster. So I asked myself a question, how come people who believe in Jesus cannot reconcile when the centrality of our gospel is reconciliation to God and to each other? So I said, maybe having pastors, they are more mature, they spend time with God, they read the scripture, they preach every Sunday. They and that was worse. Yes, it was, a <laughs> and that was a disaster. So I asked myself the question, why it's not working? And after a lot of studies and work and experimenting, uh, we realized that we need to find the forum, neutral forum to develop relationship and trust, but also we need to talk about the issues, love and justice. So the question, where are we going to, to have it? Because the community is very divided. So out of desperation, I decided to take 15 students from the Palestinian side, 15 from the Israeli. We went far away into the desert and I brought 15 camels and we crossed the desert on camels. Wow. And after three, four days, it's worked. And I asked my question, I asked myself, why? Why didn't work in the church? Why didn't work in other places? The desert is neutralized the imbalance of power. The desert force each other to learn about each other. And your neighbor, your enemy, become the source of your survival. So that was the beginning of all of it. So uh, through the years, we, di we discovered that uh, in, to have the process of reconciliation successful, we have to start in the desert. It's a life-changing experience. Then we discovered there are six stages of reconciliation. So the people that come to our reconciliation, they have to sign between a year and year and a half commitment to, to not to meet at least eight times in a year. So, and I know that you have tried to do some sort of parody. You got students, you got pastors and pastors, you got mothers who have lost children in the conflict of some sort with mothers who've lost children on the other side. You've done doctors, lawyers, all kinds of different groups. What, how has this grown over 30 years? What, what are the most successful areas of yeah. conversation, reconciliation? In our type of conflict that we call it, some people call it intractable conflict, some people call it settler colonial conflict, that's been one people group come and control other people group and move them out. This is our situation. What we have discovered that the solution will come from bottom up. In the last 50, 60 years, our politician failed. If there is conflict between state, politician can do it. But if there is conflict between communities, in type of our situation, it has to be grassroots movement uh, from bottom up, what we called uh, second and third layer of diplomacy, civil society grassroots movement. The key for grassroots movement is women. If women are involved in peacemaking, 
our ability to bring change is enhanced. So our most successful program among women. A study of conflict around the world have discovered that if you have 3.5% of the population engaging in resolving the conflict, you can guarantee almost 70% of success as if it is nonviolent. It's very interesting. We don't, you don't hear it. And just, just to put a, a term with this, this is the tipping point. This, this is, is not tipping. Gladwell, Harvard study and other things. Yes, yeah. the study has been done by a professor in Harvard. She studied conflict all around the world. She was a security <laughs> uh, professor. She thought military and power. She's been invited to a conference and she heard things. She said, I need to go and study. She thought conflict be resolved by power. And what she discovered, if you look on Liberia, Northern Ireland, Philippines, Southern Sudan, Northern, uh, many conflict around the world successfully been resolved by a grassroots 3.5% of the population. In the beginning, she didn't believe it. And until today, when I say to professional, it doesn't believe it, but when they study, it does work. So what percentage of the population of the Middle East is involved in reconciliation today? Now I'm talking about the Israeli and Palestinian right now. Sure. Uh, we, are, we have a way to get to 3.5%, probably we're on the 1% of people engaging and, right now. And you have lots of women involved in Women for Peace or? Our women, uh, Musalaha developed a whole uh, model of reconciliation process. It's like uh, if somebody dealing with grief, you know, in grief there is a stages. So we, we identify those stages. If people go through grief, they come healthier. Same way with reconciliation, we discover six stages. And if people go through the fourth, fifth stages, they are more successful. So we provide training. And one of the group that I asked for our training and women from that group came to us is women waging peace. It is a women uh, movement in Israel. It is really one that approximately 60,000 women are involved in it. And they learn also a lot from Liberia. As you know, in Liberia, was very difficult and painful in uh, conflict. And the women decided to take charge. And one of the ladies received Nobel Prize for that. And, and one of the things, you laugh on it, she, one of the things that she did, she told the men, if you go out with a rifle to fight, the bedroom door will be locked. <laughs> and it's worked. <laughs> and I'm not joking. You go and check. She received Nobel Prize for that. <laughs> so, let me so that terrified men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask. Uh, let me come at this from a different vantage point. So, in preparation for this trip, we had a conversation uh, with Roy Schwartz, who is, is, what at our Highland Park campus, Roy which is in a very a Jewish community, Roy has been involved with Bible studies and other things. 
and Roy said that he knew you. And so I interviewed Roy as a messianic Jew and asked him, okay, frame this, frame the spectrum theologically on this from dispensational to replacement and various people, and then locate yourself on that, on that spectrum. And I asked Johanna somewhat, um, Johanna Catanaccio, somewhat the same question. So how would you explain the theological spectrum of beliefs? So I realized you're doing reconciliation and you, it seems like I remember you saying, one of the first things that you wanted to do is to say to people, leave your Bible at home because you're just using your Bible as a weapon to beat other people up. So you were, you're coming at this more from a process and relationships and other things. But let's look at this theologically. What, where do you locate the camps theologically? And, I, and obviously America has its own ideologies or eschatologies or other things. And you've, you've beat me up for that a few times in the past. Did I? I should do it again. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, the, the terminology of dispensational and replacement theology are very mo a very modern concept theologically and Western. Dispensational came up uh, in the late 19th century and also matter of fact replacement started by a Jewish theologian. It's also modern theologian. Um, my theology, in the theology that say with Jesus, God has fulfilled his promises to Israel. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a theological framework that we need to work together, be together, and what we need to do. In the kingdom of God, we do not lose our distinct ethnic identity but we're all equal. So you are Palestinian, you're Jews, still Jewish, still Palestinian, but in the kingdom of God, we are all equal. And that is the key things in the Hebrew scripture and also in the New Testament. In the book of Number, in Deuteronomy, Moses won Israel. Cursed is a person that have one law for himself and for others. When Peter went to Caesarea and he met the centurion, he said to him, with God, everybody's the same. Doesn't mean I lose my identity, but we are equal before God in calling. And that is the framework that for us in reconciliation that we work with. Okay. Would, would you describe that as the same view that Johanna would articulate? And if you're not familiar with Johanna's view. I'm familiar with Johanna. He probably, I don't know, because, you know, him and I, we all the time talk theology and we change our mind from time to time. You know, only donkeys don't change their opinion, you know, as we say. Uh, so I think he probably would be in the kingdom of God. Uh, okay. Framework, so, I think. so let me come at this then from a, from a, a third perspective, not a, I don't want to say, so I don't, I don't want to in any sense limit your work to a sociological framework, but if there's a sociological reconciliation, love your neighbor driven approach, and then there's a theological framework, what are the political realities on the ground? What are the 
what are the demographic factors in Israel, Palestine that, that are shaping these discussions? Uh, yeah, there are. I think I think most people are framing <coughs> their theology out of their politics. And if I come, I was in February in the state, and I was amazed how much. Uh, the discussion and talk in the churches it was not theology, it was politics. Mm -hmm. So, uh, just, so just as um, I'll say, come back. So, go okay. Ahead. Well, I was just going to say so I've been the pastor of Christ Church for 21 years. And one time, and, and I, this is going to sound like I'm looking for it to happen a second time, but one time people have clapped during a sermon. And that's when I said, uh, you're, I said, <laughs> Your politics is not to influence your theology. Your theology is to influence your politics. And, and, and people clapped to that. People clapped. And I said, many people are more are being more discipled by their by, by talk radio, by other things than they are by Jesus. And I said, that, you know, so yes, we, we certainly understand that. Whether we see that in ourselves or not, I don't know. But yes, uh, I think there's a lot of people who are alert to the fact that at this particular moment, there's there's a lot of vitriol and a lot of of uh, political pressure shaping the way people think more so than perhaps the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, that's true. It's here. So let's go to the to the question that you started. The nature of this conflict, and uh, right now amongst scholars, we're not debating. You have a conflict between people that lived here in the land, indigenous people of the land, that most of them were Palestinian Muslims and Christians. And uh, Palestinian are uh, the people that trace their history to the mixed ethnic groups. So in our DNA will be Jewish, Canaanite, Arab, Phoenician, Greek, Roman, anyone that was in this land. So that is the identity of the people. Uh, mine is 97% with 3% African. So I went to ask my mother from where that's come from. And she said, one of your grand grandfather married Coptic uh, a lady from Egypt. So that is a 3%. So the people that lived in this land were for hundreds of years uh, under Ottoman uh, empire. And with the end of 19th century, with the collapse of the empire, with the rise of nationalism, the people here wanted to free themselves from the Turkish Ottomanic Empire. At the same time, there was another group of people. Most of them were living in Eastern Europe that we call it Ashkenazi Jews, Eastern European Jews. And in Eastern European Jews, they were suffering historically from uh, anti-Semitic. They were at that time, like some of the attitude toward Muslims in Europe today, with the, with the coming of nationalism and the breakdown of the empire, Eastern Europe become toxic. And Eastern European Jews wanted to leave Eastern Europe and to go to Britain and to America. It was a major refugee problem. American Britain closed its door. But the young Jewish people that were assimilated into European culture, they accepted the charges of the anti-Semitic ideology against Jews. And they said, we don't have room for us in Europe. 
we need to have a Jewish state, but also as a Jewish community and as, under the rabbi, we need to free ourselves. So we need to have a state. Where are we going to have a state? So we're going to have a state in Argentina, Uganda, and said, no, we want to have a state where our historical religious roots coming back to Palestine, the Holy Land. In order to do that, because they were not the majority, the only one, less than 1% Jews living at that time in the land, in order to come and to live in the land, they need the help of big empire. And the empire at that time, Britain. So the conflict, the root of the conflict, that continues to the conflict, that there are a group of people that suffer quite a bit in Europe, wanted to establish a Jewish state in Palestine, but the land was not empty. There were people living here. My family go back here to the 12th century in record. And the conflict started. So after Britain United, that supported the Jewish state, the United States is the most supported. So what the reality of our life today? West of the Jordan River, we have right now almost 51% Arab Palestinian and 49% Israeli Jews. That means there are more Palestinian than Jews living under the control of Israel. So that's demographically, and the number will continue to grow for many demographic reasons. I don't have the time to talk about it. Second. The, but the demogra are the demographics of the Jews and the demographics of the, of the Arab Palestinians roughly the same? Right now, let's 50-50, But But what's, what are the birth rates? Where, where it's are more, the it's more. There are more younger generation Palestinian than, uh, that's mean in 20 years, there would be more Palestinians than Jews in the land. But in, oh, it's in, already right now 51, 51, 49. But and is the immigration into the West Bank, you're talking west of the Jordan River, is the immigration there predominantly Christian? Christian. Leaving the West Bank. Leaving. Okay. So are uh, you moving into the West Bank? Who's moving into the West Bank? Uh, Jewish settler, national religious Jewish settlers. So they have the same theology like Christian Zionists. They believe that they need to come live in the West Bank, in order to move and live in the West Bank, they have to move the Palestinian out, as you saw, it's very crowded there. And they believe that they need to live according to Jewish law. And if they do that, that will bring the Messiah. So that is different than rabbinical Judaism. Rabbinical Jews, Orthodox Jews believe we need to wait for the Messiah. The national religious, the one who is a knitted keeper, not the black uh, yarmulke, the knitted one, believe that if we, we need to do something in order to enhance the second coming of Jesus. And is not the, Jesus, the, mas the, uh, not Messiah. the, the Messiah. Yes. Sorry, yes. I'm using the Christian language. Yeah. So is rebuilding the temple something? Yes, this is a big problem that we have right now. Those groups, of, the first massacre clash happened here in the land, one, 1929, is, was in the Western Wall. The Western Wall wasn't a whole, it was a whole Palestinian neighborhood where you, you went to the Western Wall. We're going in two days. So it was a whole neighborhood. It was like one meter, two meter. It was a, a mosque because the Muslim believes that was a place where Prophet Muhammad 
tied his horse when he went to the seven heavens. Sephardi Judas mean like your mother. Uh, Eastern Jews didn't have a problem praying there. When the Russian Jews came, the Ashkenazi Jews came to the land, they didn't know the culture, they didn't know the people, and they had different old way of life. And they started moving the chairs and separating the chairs for the women and the men. Do you, do you know what that means for Jews when you're separating the chairs from women to men? Basically declaring that this place is a synagogue because in the synagogue, Orthodox synagogue, Jew, uh, men and women don't sit together. Matter of fact, this is until today, it's a battle between Reformed Jews, American Reformed Jews and the state of Israel because they don't have a place to pray because women cannot be a rabbi and women want to pray on the wall. And they have a, and that when this small group that came from Eastern Europe have the aspiration to destroy the two mosques on the Temple Mount, Haram Sharif, and to rebuild the temple. Because from, for this group of people, the Sartic as very small, and now it's growing very much, they believe it's not enough to have Jerusalem, who control the Temple Mount, control the land, and who control the rock of in the Temple Mount, the Mount is also controlled the world. So this group are increasingly, in 1967, when Israel conquered East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area, they did agreement. According to Orthodox Jews, Jews are not allowed to go to the Temple Mount if they are not purified. So Jews were not allowed to go to the Temple Mount because you have to be pure. In order to be pure, you have to be bathed in a mikveh water with the ashes of red heifer. It's a, a, a bowl that have red heifer. And there isn't red heifer. And so there are a group in New York and group, uh, sorry, in California and group in, in Galilee, they're trying to uh, grow red heifer. So the Israeli government at that time did agreement. According to the agreement, non-Muslim can go to the Temple Mount to visit, but not to pray. But the growing group that want to change the status of the Temple Mount want to pray too, and that lead to clashes. And there were several attempts to, uh, to burn and to blow up the mosque. So that hence the clashes that we have recently. And that is a problem because to the different group, it's a religious place, but it's also political place, nationalistic place, and also struggle between the communities. So um, thank you for all of this. I'm, I, as I said, I'm talking to Johanna Roy Schwartz. Uh, in, in two days, I'm interviewing Gil Hoffman. Do you know Gil Hoffman? He's one of the editors for the uh, Jerusalem Post, uh, conservative Jew. I'm, I'm asking all of you basically the same questions yeah. and, and trying to unpack this. And so you're, you're giving us a lot of history. Let me bring this. History is important. No, we're Americans, so we don't really do history. Oh, <laughs> That's not true. That's okay. not true. That's not true. 
Well, let me just ask, let me ask your, um, let me, let me bring this up to the last couple of years. So I don't think you'll like this question, but let me ask this question. Uh, what do you, what is your take on America having its embassy in Jerusalem, not in uh, Tel Aviv? Uh, it's problematic for the following uh, reasons, uh, but it's not surprising. United States of America from the 60s is on the side of Israel. Even so, they say that they want to mediate and that. So they are in money-wise, political-wise, and all of that. So that is a reality that we like it, don't like it. This is a reality. It's not helping to resolve the conflict. Let's, the question is concerning Trump uh, changing the status of the consulate in Jerusalem, not far away from my house, from consulate to embassy. The problem goes like this. Israel, United States, and America, and Europe, and Russia have agreed that when it comes to the situation of Jerusalem, no one, no sides from all those parties will change the status without negotiation and agreement. They all sign on it. So they signed on agreement that says if the status of Jerusalem and moving the embassies, whatever it is that relates to Jerusalem has to be in agreement between the parties in the conflict. So with Trump's decision, he violated the agreement the United States have signed on it. And that is a problem because how can you guarantee in the future, if there will be a peace agreement or solution to Jerusalem, that the United States will keep its uh, what have to guarantee. So as a result, the whole equation is changed. And as a result, uh, right now, uh, Israel feel and think that they can take over East Jerusalem, where in the negotiation was an agreement that in East Jerusalem will be the capital of the Palestinian state. So that is two-state solution is going down the tube. And that, it's like, I have four boys, you have three. I, I did a little better than you, but I didn't get the girl. Anyway, so when our boys fight, what do you do? You go to each room. So the, fundamentally, throughout the last 40 years, the idea was it would be Israeli Jewish state, Palestine would be Palestinian state. You are here, they are there. Right now, the two-state solution it's not going to work out. So what are you going, what we're going to do? Because separating, it was uh, the best solution. So the, uh, in the past. Let me ask one more question and then I'll open it up to everyone else. So you've been doing this for 30, 30, years. 30 years. Any closer, are you, are you I, I mean, there's hope in Christ and there's confidence in God's ultimate prevailing. Are you optimistic? Are you seeing positive trends? You say you've got one percent. Is it? You think you're going to have two percent in ten years? I mean, what, what's your assessment of where we're at today? Positive and negative. Uh, the positive side. We at Musalaha, in this book, we have identified, discovered, and know what works and doesn't work. And that's very important. In terms of reconciliation. In peace and reconciliation, we know. It's been trialed here, other countries in the Middle East, in Britain, 
and also right now more and more in the state as you are having two tribes in state, Republican, Democrat, at least. So these models work in many countries. So that's one good. Second positive is that we see more and more Israeli and Palestinian from the larger society are coming to our program, asking to come to our program. We are flooded with requests for program to work with people. Our problem is, is more on the, you know, the capacity, that's mean mostly financial ability to, to conduct all of that thing. And who's making those requests? Israeli Jews. Sorry? Government, government or? No, 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 no. Uh, right. A civil society, engineers, right. lawyers, doctors, okay. nurses, women groups. Uh, we had nurses group. Uh, we have environmental. This wow. is the new things that we do right now. The relationship between environment and peace and reconciliation is growing a lot among young people mm -hmm. uh, using uh, the social. Uh, Social media, um, a lot of young people seeing the social media can be used for the negative. And we're going to have a program where we train them how to not to increase hate through social medias to get to know uh, each other. The new generation of generation millennium, it's already old, the Z generation, they are social media generation, art, music, it's growing like crazy in that area, there are a lot of requests. Uh, so it's like in the past, 10 years ago, we used to, uh, you're from Chicago, which car you manufacture around you? Uh, Tesla. Tesla, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, if, right, if you had one Tesla and you have two people want it, now uh, we have uh, a thousand people want to buy the same car. So that is the situation that we have. Um, so we see a uh, very much growing movement in many, many areas. But at the same time, the negative. The negative part of it, it's connected to the conflict and it's not connected to the conflict. Several countries in the Middle East are becoming failed state. That means the state is not controlling all its premises, also Israel. There's neighborhood in Jerusalem, the police will be fearful to, to go in, uh, the ultra-Orthodox neighborhood or the, some of the Palestinian neighborhood. And when you have a failed state situation, you have the rise of militant groups in the country. So violence is going up. So it's just, I, I wanna pause here for a second. So doesn't completely surprise me to hear that there is, that there will be neighborhoods in Jerusalem that are Palestinian or Arab, where there's a more radical Islamic group that the police would not want to go into. But you also said- No, I will not use that language. I okay. Will say. I'll, I'll, I'll be careful with a certain neighborhood uh, because of poverty, because of, there's too many people. Israel are not giving permission to build in the East Jerusalem, so people building illegally in order to live. Okay. And in the Orthodox neighborhood, the, the government police is not welcome. Okay. So then you have, have a crime. The, our biggest problem is there are there is, especially in the Palestinian society, high rise of, of crime because there is a neglect from the state for the infrastructure and the police is not policing. So, so and also you have just a minute in the West Bank, and also you have what we call the hilltop settlers. We have settlers whose weapon that are not obedient to the police or to Zara. They do whatever they want. 
So you have several groups in both community that low, lawless, you say in English? Mm -hmm. Lawlessness. Lawlessness. And, and then we have a gap of economic gap growing huge. Our, our kids, I mean, when I finished university, I found jobs. Our kids having a hard time finding job. And if they find job, the salary is not good enough. And the cost of living is so high. So there is a lot of unhappy people in the situation. So it's not only the conflict, it's also what's happening socially, economically in the country. And As that is, and the, and the last thing, we had uh, four or five elections in three, four years. Yep. The, the politically, the system is, is bankrupt. Our political system is bankrupt. It's not working. What surprised me, by the way, English is your second language, third language? Third language. Third. So Arabic or Hebrew? Hebrew, Hebrew Arabic, first? Hebrew, and English. Okay. Studied French, lost it. I studied Greek and Hebrew, never got it. Hebrew, <laughs> biblical Hebrew, I got it. My biblical Greek, uh, New Testament, Canadian yeah. Greek. It's very, yeah. but you don't need it anymore. You can go to computer. I know. I, software. I, I, trust me, I figured that out a long time ago. Um, so what I was, what I'm a little surprised about, and looking for you to unpack a bit, is to say that there are in Jerusalem, uh, Hasidic, there are there, ultra orthodox neighborhoods where the police are not welcome. Yeah. So they do not acknowledge the Israeli government. What are they? What are they pushing back on? There are several type of ultra orthodox Jews. There are ultra-Orthodox Jews that live in the state of Israel, but they're not recognized the state of Israel as a Jewish state. They think a Jewish state will be formed only by the Messiah. And so, so, so they are they're living in the state. They are not working. They don't go to the army and they get subsidies from the government. So you have a situation that's more than 10% of the almost 15% of the uh, Jewish population, the Orthodox Jewish population, not working, not serving in the army. So I thought, I thought that the army thing was, was changing. I thought that there was a- Still objecting to it. They're still objecting to it. And 15% of what number? So what are we talking about? Nine million. 15% of the 9.5 mm -hmm. million in Israel. Nine million, yes. Wow. And then you have the Arab population that they want to work. But don't they're discriminated. You see, the Palestinian, there is Palestinian Israeli like me. We're a third-class citizen. East Jerusalem, they're resident, not citizen. They are in a worse situation. Then you have the West Bank, they are occupied territory. They are other legal category. And Gaza, two million people and in 10 miles, 15 miles, in a jail. The situation, the situation is is not sustainable. That's what I met just up this road, uh, 50 meters from here, um, uh, the US ambassador to Israel. And he was sitting in a table with me, we were eating dinner, we talked. And he talked about the situation in Jerusalem. I said to him that never in my life, my religious right as Palestinian Christian have been violated in, the, in my 66 years old. This year at Easter, when it is the biggest celebration for us as a Christian, we go to the Church of Resurrection. You call it in English, Church of Holy Sepulchre. 
And it is the day that everybody, they allowed only 1,500 people to come. And he's Jewish. I said, if there is limit on Jewish prayer or people going to pray at the Western world, what will you do? Give it, or you give a ticket, what that will happen? We don't hear it on CNN, for sure not also Fox News. No media cover that we as a Christian, our religious right is being violated left and right. There is St. Andrew Church, here is Presbyterian Church, just met the minister. Several times there is our ultra-Orthodox Jews attack the church. We don't hear about that. We as Christians are very vulnerable. We're a small community and we feel that we, because safety, security is the role of the state. It's not our role. Okay, that's it. As you can imagine, Q&A went for a long time. And, uh, and I will work on, uh, in future travels, setting up uh, places to record these things that are uh, more conducive to podcasts. But uh, I hope that was interesting and profitable. And next week, the final in this installment on Israel. Although I do have a, uh, I have a podcast coming up because I think the formation of Israel as a nation coming out of World War II, the Balfour Agreement, uh, the formation of the nation, the modern nation of Israel is going to be one of the podcasts as well. So that's it. Enjoy. See you later.